if you would open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis 7. We'll be looking at chapter 7 through 9. So we have quite a sprint ahead of us this morning. Well, my name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redeemer. If you're new to us, I encourage you to take a minute to fill out the visitor page on the back of the bulletin that you received this morning. Uh, you can take that to the connections table out in the foyer on your way out or hand it to me after the service. I also want to remind our members that we have our next Redeemer Kids new volunteer training today at 12 p.m. over in the side annex. So this is for those of our church members who are not currently serving in the ministry, but who would like to. So please join us. I also want to make note of two Christmas events coming up. We have our annual Christmas picnic at Zabiel Park next Friday in one week at 3 p.m. So bring something savory or something sweet and enjoy fellowship. Uh, with one another, invite your friends to come as well. And then finally, on Tuesday night, December 24th, we'll have our uh, annual Christmas Eve service. You'll see invite cards laid out on your chairs. We have plenty more that you can grab on your way out at the connections uh, table after the service. Uh, invite your friends, get the word out. We're planning on inviting all the workers at the Spinneys um, down the street from us. You might even take them to your school or to your work. You could bake some cookies and bring them with the invite card to your neighbor's. Uh, get the word out. This is a great time where there probably are people in your life who would like to celebrate Christmas but don't know where to go, uh, don't know how to do so. And there's others that perhaps have never heard the true meaning of Christmas. They don't know what it's all about and they might be willing to come uh, attend with you on Christmas Eve. So let's fill this place up. It'll be right in this room. So let's fill it up uh, and celebrate the birth of our Savior together. Well, as we approach God's word, let us go to him now in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our congregation now as we look at your word. Oh, give us the grace, the protection, and the strength we need to serve you faithfully in this world. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we finish our look at the flood narrative. As I mentioned, as we do a quick sprint through chapters 7 through 9. And the first thing we'll see in these chapters is that God uncreates the world in judgment. It's the first point in the sermon, if you're taking notes. God uncreates the world in judgment. Now, the more I study this passage, and the more I've studied it this past couple weeks, I'm shocked that we tell this story to our kids. Because it's not a whimsical children's story. It's an epic and brutal story. And something in us just doesn't want to deal with all the death in it. We don't like it. We don't enjoy going to hospitals or to funerals. And when it comes to death and suffering, the camera lens of our heart does whatever it can to pan away from death and focuses on things that make us happy. But in this story, the camera actually focuses in with a close-up shot on death doesn't tell the camera man or camera woman to go zoom in on something else. And it's because the ark is not a floating zoo or a bathroom toy for kids. You know, it's easy for us to forget that everyone who was not on the ark that day perished. Uh, Gustave Doré, a famous French artist, depicts this scene, this final moment of the flood in one of his engravings. And on this engraving, there's a massive scene, massive expanse of empty sea, and just one rock shooting out from in the middle of this engraving. And on the rock, you have three little children gathered there. You see a picture of mom and dad hanging on for dear life while trying to push up their fourth child to momentary safety. And in that same engraving, you see a big tiger just on the back of the rock, just watching the whole thing go down. Around the rock are bodies floating in the waters. Above are vultures tired from circling over and over again. No, friends, whatever else we may say about the story of Noah and his ark and the flood, whatever we may say about it, it's not cute. It's not a cute story. Now, in all of Genesis has been leading up to this so far. We've seen God create the heavens and the earth. 
We've seen him create Adam and Eve in his image to be in his likeness, to be in fellowship with him, to be in friendship with God under God's authority. And yet we've seen Adam and Eve sin. We've seen them separate themselves from God. And as a result, death came into the equation as a punishment for sin. Physical death, spiritual death. We've seen things get worse and worse, right? We've seen Cain kill his brother Abel. We've seen Lamech take multiple wives, threaten violence. No, evil and death are now everywhere. And so God is going to uncreate the world in judgment by a flood. We saw last time Noah built an ark. Everyone laughs. No one listens. And then finally, after a final seven-day warning, the door to the ark shuts. It closes. And in Genesis chapter 7, verse 6 and following, the flood comes. Look at verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. Now some say that this flood was just a a local flood, that the waters really didn't cover the entire earth. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. If it was just a local flood, then why would God bring all the animals to Noah? Why not just move them on over to China where they could be safe? And why would God promise never to do this again? I mean, there have been many local floods since then. No, all of this points to the entire earth being submerged underwater. 2 Peter 3.6 indicates this as well and says, And that by means of these... The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. This was a a worldwide flood. A judgment of epic proportions. I mean, imagine for a minute what it was like to be in the ark if you're Noah and his family. This was no cruise ship to paradise. It wasn't flowing with unlimited filet mignon and butter chicken. There's no shawarma stand or hallow hallow shop. No, it was no holiday to lay back, rest, and refresh, and work on your can. Now, if you were there on the ark with Noah and his family, the rain was beating down on the ark, perhaps thunder and lightning and darkness. The animals were terrified, perhaps crying out. The wind kicked in, hammered on the side of the ark for 40 days. Now, at some point, the birds could no longer fly and circle around above the water, and they fell into the ocean. At some point, the people and the animals could no longer swim, and they drowned under the sea. Now, everything died. Everyone died. Now, meanwhile, Noah and his family are on the boat. They're on the ark. At first, they would have heard the shrieks and the squeals and screams of terror from their neighbors and family and friends. And yet over time, over the minutes and hours that passed, those cries would have grown dim and distant until they were no more, until all they could hear was the roar of the water and the sound of the rain. We don't know this for sure, but it's quite possible that some people swam up to the ark and started beating on the doors, begging Noah to open them. There in safety, Noah and his family just sat, perhaps huddled together, maybe, maybe weeping, perhaps distraught. But chapter 7, verse 23 tells us that every living thing outside the ark was wiped out. Now why would God do something like this? Why would God destroy the world? Some of us will protest and say, well, well, God should have spared them. God, why didn't you spare them? God, you should have extended mercy to them. Well, friends, he did. 
He did. He sent an enormous boat. And he sent a preacher. Second Peter 2 says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And for over a hundred years, Noah preached. And anyone who wanted to get onto the boat was welcome to get onto the boat. Now the problem wasn't God. The problem wasn't that he was a mean God. The problem was with man because no one wanted to trust God and get on his boat. Now everyone laughed off Noah. Noah, you're crazy. God's crazy. There's no, no judgment. They didn't believe judgment would come. And so they went about doing their normal things, living their normal lives, doing whatever they wanted. Now, friends, doesn't this ring a familiar sound this morning? Now, today, so many live as if there really isn't a God. Or at least that there really isn't a judgment. And even if there is a judgment coming, we haven't done anything worthy of punishment, of eternal judgment. And in, in the end, love will win. All of us will be saved. Or, or something good will happen. So we just eat, we drink, we, we be happy, we do what we want. The life goes on, right? I'm okay. You're okay. We're, we're all just okay. Well, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, when he speaks of the end, he actually compares it to people in Noah's time. And listen to these words. This is Jesus. He says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, but even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. How could the people be unaware? I mean, this verse is stunning to me when I read it this week. Noah was preaching for a hundred years. He was building this massive ark. I mentioned last time you could fit 500 modern-day railroad cars into it. For some people, over 100 years was a large portion of their adult life, and this ark was a visible illustration of Noah's preaching. It was right there. Noah's preaching. Here's the illustration. Judgment is coming. Get on the boat. Would have been obvious to everyone. There it was. And we can dance around the elephant in the room, but how do you avoid the big ark? And yet Jesus says, in Noah's time, the people were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. It's just a stunning notion, isn't it? And friends, I need to ask you this morning, is this you? Are you unaware of the judgment of God that is coming? Are you preoccupied with the world? And what about your sin? What will you do with your sin? Are you more concerned with searching and striving and seeking temporary happiness that will numb your soul to your pain than in finding soul-satisfying and infinite, never-ending joy? Oh, friend, there is more to this life than this life. There is a coming judgment, and the flood will pale in comparison to this final judgment. Our Savior Jesus will come back, and in that day, much like in the days of the flood, it'll be too late to knock on the door of the ark. In fact, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, that men and women will cry out to the mountains, they'll cry out to the rocks to fall on them so that they can be crushed, so that they don't have to face the judgment of God. And Christian, what about you? Are you living in light of a coming judgment? Or have you gotten comfortable, convinced that you will indeed have another day or another month or another year or another decade? Has this affected your evangelism? The sharing of your faith? If you knew that judgment was coming in X many years or in seven days, 
How would that affect your evangelism? Is there a sense of urgency in your sharing of your faith? Your neighbors, do your neighbors know that you're a Christian? How about your security guards or shopkeepers or fellow students or co-workers? Those, of, those who are, are around you each and every day, do they know the hope that you have within you? Have you shared that with them? See, Christmas is a great time to do that. It's an incredible time to share your faith because hardly anyone around you could claim to be unaware of the Christmas holiday. To use the season as an easy transition to tell people the story of Jesus and the true meaning of Christmas. Perhaps we could spend less time worrying about what we're going to buy people for Christmas and instead spend more time thinking about who we can tell about Jesus this Christmas. Tell them the story of Christmas is that God became a man. Tell them that he left the luxury of heaven to come to this fallen world. That he was born a humble human in a mangled manger to a wicked woman and a marred man. That he worked, that he cried, that he hurt, that he walked through the dusty roads of a broken world. And that he lived perfectly for over three decades. A life from the day he was born to the day he died was literally a march to his death. Tell people that Jesus came to live, to die. That his very purpose in being born as a human on Christmas was so that he would go to his death, so that he could pay the penalty on the cross for our sin. That it's God's remedy for our fallenness. That it's the way wicked people like you and me could get onto the ark to be saved. Now you could even use Christmas to contrast Jesus with Santa Claus. Have you ever thought about this? Pretty easy because soon Santa will be everywhere. Everyone knows who Santa Claus is. But see, the message of try harder and do better is not good news. Santa says, earn it. But Jesus says, receive it. Santa says, if you're good, I'll bless you. Romans 3 says, not any one of us is good, but we need Christ. Santa says, I'm making a list. And I'm checking it twice, going to find out who's been naughty or nice. But Jesus says, I fulfilled that list. And I declared, it is finished. It is done. I've done it for you. See, the gospel brilliantly outshines the burden moralism of Santa Claus and all religion. Friends, use Christmas as an opportunity to tell people to get onto the ark, to come to Christ. Some may laugh at you like they laughed at Noah. But friends, the floods of judgment are coming, and there's no greater thing you can do this Christmas than to, to give people the gift of hope. As a church, let's be givers of the gift of hope to the people around us. God creates the world in judgment. God uncreates the world in judgment, but there is hope. That's the second point of the text this morning. We've seen God uncreate the world. Well, the second point, second thing we see is God recreates the world in mercy. Uncreates in judgment, but he recreates in mercy. A whole year passes. Apparently God is silent and the waters begin to recede. Genesis 8 verse 1 picks up the rest of the story. It says, God remembered Noah. Now, it's not as if God had forgotten Noah, but God made a covenant promise that he would save him and his family, and he's now acting on it. He's going to act on that promise that he made. As you read through these accounts in your community groups this week, did you notice all the similarities between Genesis 8 and 9 and Genesis 1? Did you notice that? It's as if God is the director here and says, stop, cut. Now, let's take it again from the top. Let's start over. You see, in Genesis 1, the water is divided, and then now here in Genesis 8, verse 2, God separates the water and the sky. In Genesis 1, God separates the dry land from the water, and in chapter 8, he causes the mountains to appear as the water recedes. In Genesis 1, God creates the birds, and he sends them to fill the earth. 
Here in our text, Noah sends the ravens and the doves out to survey the earth. In Genesis 1, God created living creatures and sent them out. Here, God returns the living creatures from the ark to repopulate the earth. And in Genesis 1, God created man and woman in his own image on the sixth day as, as the apex of creation. Here, Noah and his wife emerge as the representatives of man. And just as he blessed Adam earlier, in Genesis 9, verses 1 and 2, God blesses Noah in his family. Now, this is a recreation of the world, a starting over. This is God's kind mercy. The mankind should have been destroyed completely, but they're given a kind of second chance, another opportunity. Now, God's judgment had been all around, and the ark floated safely on top of it. The ark is an image of Christ, and Noah and his family are symbolic of the church. We are gathered today in the ark. Not this building, though the Marriott would make a pretty nice ark. No, all who trust in Christ, the invisible universal church made up of believers from all time, all of us will be delivered from the judgment of God, just as Noah and his family were delivered. No, Genesis 6 begins with a word of judgment, but Genesis 8 brings us a word of mercy. In chapter 7, he uncreates the world in judgment. In chapter 9, he recreates the world in mercy. And then in chapter 9, he continues to extend his mercy, doesn't he? He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. They would have had the privilege of filling the earth with children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. He gives them animals to eat his food. And because sin has entered the world, as a grace, he gives them capital punishment. A life for a life. It's a way of curbing sin and producing fear in the hearts of people. It's an act of grace and mercy. And in his grace, God promises never to do this again. In chapter 9, verses 11 through 13, God promises to never destroy the world by flood again. Look at verse 11. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, a covenant is an agreement between two or more parties. Sometimes it's conditional. Other times it's unconditional. Here in Genesis, it's unconditional. There are no conditions. God says, I will never under any circumstances, no matter what happens, I will never destroy the earth through a flood again. You can imagine how without this people would have thought every time it rained, is this it? Is this another flood? Is this another judgment of God? Every time the gray clouds, storm clouds came over them, they would have been terrified. They would have lived in fear, wondering, could it be happening again? And so God makes a promise, and he gives them a sign, a rainbow. Now, what is a rainbow? Well, can you remember back to ninth grade science class? It's light refracted through rain. And here's a little trivia point. It's actually not a bow. It's actually a circle. It's actually a rain circle, but you have to be in the air to see the entire circle, either an airplane or to skydive. If you're on Earth, all you can see is the bow. So we don't call it a rain circle, but we call it a rainbow, like a bow that shoots arrows. Now, it's interesting that the word used in Genesis is not the normal word for, for rainbow in the Hebrew. Now, it's obviously talking about rainbows, the rain is finishing, the sun has come out, and you have a rainbow. But literally the word is the word used for war bow, like a bow and arrow, a weapon. And what God is saying to them and what God is saying to us is, I've laid up my war bow, my weapon, and there will be no more condemnation. There will be no more flood. Now why is God doing this? Well, God says, I'm laying my bow up. Well, is sin finished? Is sin done? No. He's just laid out provisions for capital punishment. He 
assume sin is continuing. Sin hasn't been eradicated. He knows it hasn't been vanquished, but he's being merciful. Now, Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, said that we should have known this by looking at the rainbow itself. If the bow was pointed downward, Spurgeon says, you'd always be a bit scared that at any point the arrows could come down on us. But he said a rainbow is pointed upwards. The arrows are aimed up. The God has not stopped being a God of wrath and judgment, but he's aiming his arrows and wrath at something else. But where are they going? It's astounding when we see a rainbow because it's at the conjunction of a storm and the sun. When mercy and judgment come together. Well, friend, you know where those arrows went? On Christ. See, on the cross of Christ, we see the storm. God was so infinitely holy, so relentlessly holy. And to save us from our sins, he had to die. But it's there at the greatest point of justice that we also see the greatest love. See, on the cross, the storm of eternal justice and the sun of God's love come together and you see a rainbow. See, every time you see the heart of a storm and see a rainbow, remember that he got the lightning, he got the judgment so that we could have the rainbow. Jesus got the storm of God's wrath so that we could have the sunshine of his son. That's why the bow, Spurgeon says, is not pointed down, but it's pointed up. Christ received what we deserved in his death on the cross. Well, friends, are you getting a deepening sense of the mercy of God as we study Noah and the flood? We shouldn't even be here. But God spared Noah, spared his family, and even now each breath, each moment, each day is a gift from God. Oh, Christian, do you see how your salvation was an act of severe mercy? Instead of being overtaken by the flood of judgment, God poured out the entire flood on his son. It should transform us. It should cause us to overflow in thanksgiving to God and in pouring out mercy unto others. See, in mercy, God chose Noah, and in mercy, God chose you in Christ. He has led you onto the ark of Christ, and he has saved you. And while judgment crashed all around you, he held you safely in his arms. Now, the mercy shown to you should lead us to lavishly extend Mercy to others. Well, what is mercy? Well, it's not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, salvation. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Judgment, punishment, damnation. Our freedom from judgment is sheer and utter mercy. Well, Christian friend, if you haven't passed through the judgment of God, why do you try and play God by punishing others? You've been pardoned and yet you hold others under judgment? As a Christian, how could we hold unforgiveness from others? How could we be bitter for what someone has done to us? How could we be so bitter that then we go out and hurt them by giving them the cold shoulder or ignoring them or manipulating them? How could we give our spouse the silent treatment or withhold intimacy or leave the house in anger or have tempered tantrums? My friend, you do that as judgment. You do those things to cause pain and punishment to another. Oh, Christian friend, God has withheld judgment from you. Don't hold it over someone else. See how God has so richly persevered you and preserved you from judgment and shower others with his love. Now God has recreated the world in mercy. He is a merciful God. He has uncreated the world in judgment. He has recreated the world in mercy. But there's a third point, the third thing that I want us to see 
in this passage this morning. And that's that we are to live in light of his mercy. The third thing we see is we, as Christians, we as those saved by the cross of Christ, are to live in light of his mercy. Now, I've already started to talk about this at the end of my last point, but it becomes even clearer here as Noah steps out into the new world. Now, at this moment, if you're Noah, and you're looking out out at this world pregnant with possibility, what do you do? What's the first thing you do? I mean, do you build a house? Do you go looking for some good food and build a fire and cook the first hot meal you've had in a while? Or do you take a nap? That sounds like a good idea. A nice, long nap. What's the first thing you, you would do? Well, here's what Noah does. First thing he does, he gets off the boat. He grabs some dirt and rocks. He sticks it together and he makes a makeshift altar there at the end of chapter 8. The first thing he does is he worships God. His first priority, his highest value, his most urgent and pressing need after arriving in the new world is to worship God. Is that what what you would have done? Is that the very first thing you would have done in the new world? Is that your highest priority today? I mean, do you see your deliverance and instinctively worship the God who saved you? Well, this is what Noah does. He gets off the boat, marvels at the mercy shown him through the flood, and realizes he's just a wicked man like everyone else who died. He's no better than those who've perished, that he too should have died, and yet he was shown God's mercy. No, Noah doesn't boast. He doesn't look at his wife and say, see, I told you I'm the best ark captain in the world. I just received the MOY award, man of the year. You should bow down and worship me. I am the greatest and you're lucky to have me. No, Noah doesn't do that. Noah doesn't point the glory at himself and say, look at what I've done. Look at how great I am to lead us to salvation. No, he doesn't. He takes no credit. He gets off the boat. He builds a makeshift altar and he begins to worship God. It's the first thing he does as he gets off the boat. He goes straight to worship. And this was no easy task. There in chapter 8, verse 20, it says that he got some of all the animals, all the clean animals. Now, this was probably a lot of animals. Noah would have taken a knife and one by one, one after another, he would have slaughtered the animals. It may have taken him all day, perhaps, maybe hour upon hour to kill and properly slaughter each and every clean animal, or one of each. He would have spent that whole first day remembering, remembering that he was a greedy, lustful, covetous man who needed God's saving mercy. See, by sacrificing, you were trusting in God to provide the ultimate sacrifice. Now, even here, before the sacrificial system, this blood poured out would have pointed to the one who would ultimately come to be the final sacrifice. Now, what Noah was doing with this altar was worshiping God. Now, in a sense, this is what we're doing today, isn't it? We're here to worship Now, as far as I know, we're not going to worship any animals today. There aren't any goats behind this curtain back here. But that's what we're doing. We've gathered together to worship the king. We're taking time out of our lives to acknowledge that he is God and we are not. We're taking time to confess our sins, to sing praises to God, to worship God by giving sacrificially of our finances, by hearing God's word being taught and making any necessary changes in our lives as a result of his word. And just as Noah gave up his time, treasure, and talents, that's what, that's what we're doing. We're doing the same for God and for his church. Well, I once heard this parable about a gardener that I think illustrates worship well. There was this gardener who grew carrots, and he grew one carrot so big, it was the biggest carrot he'd ever seen, and so he went to the king, and he brought this carrot, and he said, O oh, king, Oh, king, this is the biggest, best, and greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow, and I want to give it to you as a gift. 
The king said, wow, that's a really great carrot. Thank you. I'm going to give you a whole another garden so that you can keep growing. And the gardener left with joy. Well, a nobleman was overhearing this. He was overhearing what happened, and he thinks to himself, well, let's see what I can get from the king. And so he grabs a horse. He grabs his greatest horse, and he goes to the king and says, here's my horse. It's the greatest horse I've ever seen. It's the greatest horse in all of the world. Here, king, I give you this horse as a gift. The king looks at him and begins realizing what the nobleman is doing. He sees behind his schemes, and he looks at the nobleman and says, thank you. He grabs the horse, and he begins to walk away. But as he's walking away, he turns back to the nobleman and says, you see, the gardener gave me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. It's exactly what he was doing, wasn't he? Giving the horse only to get a horse, only to get something in return. And friends, this is how many approach God. Sure, I'll worship God. Sure, I'll give of my money or I'll serve in that ministry. I'll give of my time or I'll spend time praying. I'll spend time doing good works. I'll serve God. I'll serve the poor. I'll serve this person. I'll refrain from sin. I'll do these things. But God, you better give me that horse or that house or my health or that thing I so desire. No, I'll scratch your back, God, but you better scratch mine. And when we do that, we're acting just like that nobleman, giving only to get something better. This is what the prosperity teachers teach on the television. Give to our ministry, give to God, give right now, call this number, send this money in, and you will receive tenfold. You'll get back more than you've ever dreamed of. Give a little, get a lot. That's the cry of these false teachers. But friend, when you give, you aren't giving to God, are you? No, you're giving to yourself. You're not doing it for God. You're doing it for you. You're using God. This is what a religious person does. You serve God for you. But see, a Christian serves God because of the beauty of who God is. A Christian serves God For God. A Christian worships God for God. A Christian worships God for who God is and what God has already done. A Christian worships God for God because he is more precious than anything this world has to offer. See, God is the beginning and the end. He's the goal. God is the goal. He's the goal. More of him, not more of the stuff you think you can get from him. Well, friend, that's the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is to get more of God, not more of the stuff we think we can wrangle out from him. And so the first thing Noah does is he gets off the ark. The whole new world is at his doorstep. And the first thing he does is he goes to God. He builds this altar. He slaughters animals perhaps all day. And he revels and marvels at the mercy of God. And chapter 8, verse 21 says, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. What a sweet picture. Here's Noah worshiping God, and here's this great picture of God smelling the aroma. That Noah has honored God. Noah has worshiped God faithfully and truly according to who he is. And the Lord was pleased. The Lord was pleased by Noah's sacrifice, his worship. And so things are going well, aren't they? Things are going well, and the story ends. The recipient of God's mercy lives in light of that mercy, and the story ends. Or does it? Now, wouldn't it be nice if chapter 9 just ended here? Wouldn't it be nice if the text just ended here? We could tie a pretty little red bow on it. Wouldn't it be nice if it just ended here, and we could all go home holding hands and singing Amazing Grace as we exit row by row out of the ballroom. Just all happy. Look at Noah. Look at this hero. Look at who God is. Look at what's happened. And we could end, pray, go home. Because surely after this grand voyage, surely God's mercy 
given to Noah would then lead to Noah living this amazing life of faith. But what happens next is not expected at all. Look down at chapter 9, verse 20 and following. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now, our children's books don't include this part, do they? They stop at the giraffes and their fluffy heads sticking out of the ark. We never tell them this part. There are no sheets in the coloring book at the Christian bookstore for the scene. We kind of omit it. It's not very nice. That's a sad ending to this narrative, isn't it? Noah works hard to plant a vineyard. This is hard work. You don't just snap your fingers and plant a vineyard. He had spent lots of time doing this. It's no easy task. And then we read in those verses that Noah had a few drinks too many. He becomes drunk and he lays naked in his tent. Righteous, rescued, redeemed Noah lay passed out in a drunken stupor in his home. Well, sin is alive and well in this new world, isn't it? Well, how did this happen? Noah Noah was doing so well. Well, I don't exactly know how it happened, but one thing is for sure. He got off the ark and he was living in light of God's mercy. God had spared him of judgment. And he remembered, he offered sacrifices all day. But then after a while, he forgot. Or at least wasn't ruled by God's mercy and grace anymore. Well, friends, maybe you've noticed this in your life. A tendency to ease up on pursuing holiness as conflicts lessen and as time goes on. See, when all the world was against Noah, he faced scorn and violence straight up. He fought well. But in his vineyard, he relaxed, got drunk. With the world's eyes on him, he stayed strong. Over a hundred years building this ark, when he was alone, he fell. On the ark, facing the pressure of the rain and the judgment, he was faithful. Now with the whole new world at his disposal, he forgets God's mercy. He fails to live in light of God's mercy. And the story doesn't get any better with Ham's sin, does it? Ham finds his father drunk, if you read the rest of the narrative. He finds his father drunk and naked, and he took a snickering delight in this spectacle. He couldn't wait to expose his father's folly to his brothers. It was an abrogation of honoring his father and mother. But he goes out to find Shem and Japheth. Surely they'll want to laugh with me and mock our father. Ham's all all gleeful. He says, oh, oh, look at that. My righteous dad, the hero of the world, has sinned. Look at him. He's not as good as he thinks he is. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. So Ham says these words. Ham goes to his brothers, Shem and Japheth, but the slanderous words seem to just ricochet off his brother's ears and fall straight to the ground. Not only do Shem and Japheth not rejoice and join in the gossip, they walk in backwards and cover their father's nakedness. See, 1 Corinthians says that true love does not rejoice in iniquity. We don't rejoice, friends, when Christians sin. It's not a time of celebration or laughing, or mocking. We don't mock others when they struggle or fall. They're boosting our self-righteousness and making us feel better by pointing out someone else's sin and mocking or laughing at them. We don't slander. We don't share gossip people's shortcomings. No, we weep, and we help. Now, Ham had greatly dishonored his father. And so Noah gets up. Somehow Noah finds this out. We don't know how. But in verse 25, he curses Canaan, Ham's youngest son. And in verses 26 and 27, he blesses Shem and blesses Japheth. Now, why did the curse, why does this curse fall on Ham's son? It seems a bit strange. 
Don't know exactly, but it's likely that Noah detected in Canaan the same evil trait seen in his father. Now, Canaan was a bad apple who didn't fall very far from the tree. Maybe he was already walking in his dad's footsteps. And plus, this curse was actually a prophetic oracle. It's not so much that Noah was making the curse. He wasn't calling fire on them. But he was announcing what God was going to do. Maybe he was even stating the obvious. Now, back in the early chapters of Genesis, we saw that Adam and Eve had sinned. They experienced shameful nakedness. God came and he covered it. Well, here the two boys are following the example of God and covering the shameful disgrace of their own father, and they are blessed. But the reality of our passage is that sin is alive and well and has caught up with Noah and his family. See, in wartime, Noah thrives and worships God. In peacetime, he falls. I think for many of us, this is a familiar story. It's a familiar story as we look at our own lives. Perhaps it's a story of you upon coming to Dubai. Perhaps you're making more money, have a better job. Maybe you have more peace than before. Maybe you've come from a country that's war-torn, where bombs go off, there's fighting all around you. You've come to a country of peace. You've come to a country of prosperity. You've come to a country where you've done well. But maybe instead of continuing to worship God like you did back home, this place has become a spiritual parenthesis for you. As if the, the worship, the rules and worship of God really don't apply to you here as they did back home. Perhaps we do things here that we wouldn't normally do back home. As if, well, Dubai is, is, is an exception. Maybe we don't take church involvement seriously. Maybe we spend a little too much time with that person of the opposite sex. Maybe we do immoral things with our finances. Well, friend, whatever it is, no sin is minor. No sin is small in God's eyes. You might think and read this text of chapter 9 of Genesis, and you might say, well, what Noah and Ham did really wasn't that bad. It, it didn't hurt anybody. It wasn't that evil. But friend, God takes these sins seriously. God takes these sins that you and I might say, well, it's, it's not that bad. He takes those sins seriously. Well, friend, maybe we're, you're numb to your sin and you've started forgetting God's saving mercy and grace. Maybe the story speaks directly to your heart today. Well, Christian friend, have you forgotten the gospel? Have you forgotten the good news, this mercy that God has shown you? Have you forgotten that you should have been in this water drowning? And in fact, the reality is you had drowned. You were dead on that ocean floor, and yet God, in his mercy and grace, has brought you back to life through the death of Jesus. Oh, Christian friend, don't forget this good news. See, the only explanation for Noah moving from worship to drunkenness is that he forgot the good news and began to fail to live in light of it. Remind yourself of God's mercies. Be in friendship with other believers and be constantly reminding each other of God's mercy. Friend, don't assume the gospel. Don't spend all your time talking about trivial things. Talk about Jesus. Remind yourself what he's done. A Christian, in this specific episode, in these moments here, we're Noah. We've been saved by God's grace, and yet there are times when we build an altar to the Lord and worship him, and yet there are other times when we fall and sin. Maybe this is you today. Maybe you're here worshiping God with your time. Maybe you've just sung praises to God as we've sang these great Christmas hymns. Maybe you've just worshiped God through giving. Maybe you're worshiping God now as we hear the word of God preached. But friend, what about Sunday morning as you wake up? What about Monday morning when you go to work? Or you wake up only to realize that it's another day with the same kids doing the same things? What, what about Tuesday night when you're there in your flat all alone? What about Wednesday morning when the pressure's hit at work and you're so distraught and you don't know how you can make it through that day? Or what about Thursday when you have a family conflict or conflict with your spouse that burdens you so much? What about that day? 
Oh friend, train your heart to delight in the heavenly fare of Christ and not the cheap crumbs that this world has to offer. Be sober, be watchful, because our enemy, the devil, is roaring around us like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Oh friend, let it not be you. Let Christ be your ark to carry you through the flood of his good and just judgment. Friend, live in light of God's mercy. Let us pray together. Oh, Father, we pray that we would not forget the mercy you've shown us. Oh, Father, would we not fail to realize that we deserve to be in that flood, and yet you have given us new life. Oh, Father, would we look at Noah, would we see his worship, and would we see his failure, and would we look at our lives Would we look at our lives and realize we need more of Jesus, that we need to be reminded of your mercy and grace each and every day? Oh, Father, would we be a community, would we be a church that would proclaim the riches of the gospel to one another? Would we wake up in the the morning marveling that your mercies are new again and again and again? Oh, Father, when we're tempted to sin, when we're tempted to fall away from you, would we remember the finished work of Christ? Would we remember the new reality that we now live in? Oh, Father, would we remember Jesus? This Christmas, would we remember that in his birth, he came to live to die? Or, Lord God, would you transform our hearts in these coming days, that we would see and savor the beautiful Savior that you have given us. Oh, Lord God, even now as we sing, that the joy has indeed dawned in the coming Christ. In his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, we have hope. Lord God, would you cement the truths of this scripture? Would you cement the truths of the songs we're about to sing into our hearts now, lest we forget what you have done for us? Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.